Hello and welcome to the Library Cafe after our long summer hiatus. Today we will be talking with the novelist, poet, and professor of English here at Vassar College, Michael Joyce, about his most recent novel, Remedia, a Picaresque, published in 2018 by Steerage Press. Welcome, Michael. Thank you, Tom. It's great to have you on the show. So I'm thinking of links or hyperlinks, perhaps, between this book and your earlier work, or maybe not links at all, but trajectories might be a better word, which implies you know, more linearity. The question is, is there a progression, a narrative maybe, that situates Remedia in the wider story of your work, or maybe that situates your work in the story of Remedia? I'm not sure, but the question, I suppose, is how does Remedia, this novel, relate to your work, with hyperfiction in particular, but your earlier work? Yeah, I mean, there is. There's another novel, in fact. Mm -hmm. There's a novel that I wrote called Was, and uh. a novel of Internet, which was in 2007, and that was a novel where information itself was the main character. It's a much more experimental in language and what have you. And it tries to capture the sort of uh, multiplicity of voices that the net brought to us. But it also moves in a picaresque-like way from locale to locale. Uh -huh. It actually, I think, covers all the continents uh -huh. and what have you. Uh -huh. uh, my publisher, the Sturge publisher, called it a prequel, and it is to a certain extent a prequel, but it wasn't I didn't always intend to write Remedia. Yeah. So Remedia comes along as, to my mind, a sort of a media history, ah. uh, but a particular media history, one that comes from uh, its dates span from 1987 to 2001, which is, you know, from just before the rise of the Internet yeah. to just before 9-11. And so both of them being what I think of as voltas as change points for media itself. Uh-huh, yeah, your chapter headings are very chronological, I mean, year yeah. by year. So yeah, are, are yeah, all of, the, of, years, all of yeah. the narrative loops back. Yeah, yeah, yeah it does, yeah, back. well, that's true. It, it, it doesn't just take place in a linear way. So you mentioned the picaresque. I wonder what attracts you to this particular genre. And as you say, the picaresque is known for its kind of discursive, wandering plot and, and uh, timeline, but there's more to it than that, isn't yeah, there? I yeah, think yeah. There, I, I think there is. I mean, if one is trying to conceive of what happened to media in the late 20th century, uh -huh. it isn't an historical progression as much as it's a sort of a riding out into uh -huh. the cultural landscape. We don't have to be Foucauldian about it, but there are predecessor technologies that come and go, and uh, you know other parts of the media landscape that you have to traverse. I'm very fond of the OED definition of, of a picaresque, uh -huh. which is, quote, relating to an episodic style of fiction dealing with the adventures of a rough and dishonest uh -huh. <laughs> but appealing hero. Yeah, uh -huh. um, you know, Tom Jones. Uh, right, that sort of thing. Sure, yeah, sure, sure. Whether my main character is rough is something that can be defined one way or another. But surely he's dishonest in a very interesting way. Dishonest, I think, to himself, and I think the various female characters, women characters, tried to bring him uh -huh. to look into the mirror of, of the things he's being dishonest about, but he's also an appealing hero. I think that's a kind of a nice definition of what it is. He's also unnamed. As, uh -huh, you know, I yeah. guess that's not a spoiler, but yeah. but just in, in in the way that was had as a main character information, the sort of flow of information. In this case, there is an observer. There is the Picaro, the Picaro, uh -huh. but he doesn't really quite have a name. He has one name that comes from a credit in a student film he was in earlier, oh, but other uh, than that, yeah. I don't think he's named uh, in the story. Yeah, yeah, interesting, very interesting. But the book isn't susceptible to that kind of spoiler, <laughs> is it? So, so we can talk about it. I mean, right, you can talk about right. it. So the question is, 
can you describe the narrative sort of general terms? Sure. In fact, what I'll do is I, I just happen to have what my then agent described as maybe the worst pricey of a novel <laughs> ever written, but but one that amuses me. Let me read that, and then we, uh-huh, we can okay. talk about it. Um, I say narrated by a young winsome seeker who since his childhood thinks he's seen a series of actual doors uh-huh. into the universe, that it's not a speculative fiction, but a sort of tragicomic chronicle of the narrator's peregrinations to France, Ireland, San Francisco, and the Utah desert before phantasmagoric first foray through one of the portals, uh-huh. a journey that transports him face down in muck and dung to a hawk pen on an Amish farm in rural Iowa and transforms the novel's subtle explorations of late 20th century media culture into a transgressive comic apocalypse. Even reading it, yeah. you can see why my agent thought it was a terrible but pitch it for something. <laughs> it, it explains it all very succinctly. Yeah. You know, and I think it has a little happens. bit of yeah, the yeah, picturesque yeah. language well, about it. Yeah. 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 And, and it's, it's probably pretty hard to describe yeah. what gets us to Iowa, even for the character. And, and so uh, why he ends up in a hog pen is uh-huh. one of the mysteries, I suppose. Uh-huh. So the portals, they seem to hold it together, and they certainly hold your hero together. They're what make him interesting. So the doors he sees, or portals, suggest, of course, hyperlinks to me uh, immediately. And can you talk about those a bit? Because it it is a sort of fantastic interjection into a realistic narrative. Yeah, I mean, I think it's increasingly normalized for us in in our culture. We tend to expect even the real world has buttons that you can press to open up a another dimension or what have you, but it's certainly something that has seized literary imagination uh-huh. over the ages, the idea that there is a wormhole to another world or a, you know, a mystic portal of some sort or another. But yeah, it's absolutely a sort of a, a sense of what media in the 20th century and, and before that has been for many people. We, we know the stories of the first films and how people sort of turned in terror from uh, oh. the, the train coming into the station. Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember years and years ago, uh, one of my former high school teachers, a uh, Jesuit who went off to work in the South Pacific as a missionary in, the, in Yap in the Carolina Islands, showed 2001 A Space Odyssey on the beach and projected it outdoors and reported, not in a primitivist way at all, but that the people there were running into the water behind the screen to see where oh. this world was, oh, you know, oh. and, and um, oh. I, I think that fundamental experience that we yeah. all have, and, and my novel does begin with its character being held in his mother's arms and thinking he sees this oh. this gateway to another world, a portal, that later as he becomes a young man, he, he connects with the movies he's watching, uh-huh. really the movies of the 60s, but I think we at various times in immediate culture find ourselves literally transported, and uh, I FaceTime with my granddaughter, and I've Uh noticed with the last Uh two of our granddaughters that when we FaceTime with them, what they do is live their life in front of the portal, Uh you know, live their life in front of the camera. Yeah, it's true. I just experienced at my brother's house, I walked into a room, and my nephew was sitting in front of a television screen, and there was somebody else, you know, another relative, Mm -hmm. a little girl, on the other side there, you know, talking to him, in the room with him, you know, as far as I could see, you know, so it was really kind of a shock to me. Because I remember actually, you know, a time, it must have been in the early 80s when I first arrived at Vassar, I had a desktop computer and it was rather unusual. 
and I could see where my job was going in a way, but then I could also see where everybody's job was sure, going. And, sure. I, and I, I mentioned to somebody, you know, it's not going to be long before we're all sitting in front of these television screens all day long because it's the only place we're going to be able to do what we do. And right. nobody quite knew what I meant. I was doing something clerical at the time, but right. uh, but no, uh, but it, you know, it came to pass pretty quickly, actually. So. No, I agree. I remember, uh, you know, my longtime colleague and collaborator Jay Bolter, who's a uh, great theoretician of. of media culture and literary culture. He wrote a book called Turing's Man, and at that point, not as much of the world was his network. And he talked about being a scholar working late at night in his computer in, and imagining the other people up late at night, lit by only their screens. Uh, and it wasn't very long after Turing's Man that uh, everything changed, and you didn't need to imagine that. Yeah. Somebody would be texting you or emailing you at, yeah. the, at that moment, and yeah. you were aware of that network. But the, the important thing, since we're talking about portals and what have you, is that network, that sense of an interconnected world, has always been there. It's one uh, thing I've consistently uh, uh, talked uh, about in terms of my own literary work, yeah. is that these are not inventions of the late 20th or 21st century yeah. that modernism anticipated. One could argue that is uh, that Twelfth Night anticipated yes, yeah, these, yeah. these sort of portal fiction in a sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. sure. Yeah, interesting. So you have all kinds of technology built in here. The portals do suggest to me hyperlinks. But you also have other kinds of media, including obsolete media, from various kinds of photographs and photographic processes to dramatic performances to tape recorders and wax cylinder recordings to toy walkie-talkies to playing cards to film. You've got ancient sculptural figures and early wireless devices. You've even got Freud's magic writing. Thank, thank you for noticing yeah, that. Yeah, I did, yeah. And ICBMs, actually, which are a kind of media. Really and are. I was going to say everything but the kitchen sink, but you do have a kitchen there sink in the San kitchen. Francisco. <laughs> there is Francisco a kitchen chapter. sink. Yeah, You're, so, right. Yeah, so. You're right. I mean, part of that is you know, the inevitable result of trying to address a media culture. We now talk in terms of material culture studies uh, and we look distinctly at things from playing cards yeah. to ICBMs. Yeah. But my picro here is moving both through an actual world of media objects uh -huh. but also a memory world. The photography stuff comes easily yeah. to me because my father uh, was a photographer uh -huh. and I grew up being in dark rooms and what have you. Not quite with the Gandolfi camera that... Yeah, I was that, going to say, have you ever yeah, seen the yeah, yeah, Gandolfi? Yeah, but, right. Uh, well, in museums, I yeah. have. So some of those things come quite directly to me. Obviously, the Apple II computer that yeah. draws a Amish boy into a, a world beyond his own yeah. barn. Uh -huh, uh -huh. That was, that was yeah. a computer I knew well. So a lot of these things are... But others are, yes, investigatory or, or you know, sort of just coming to think about what constitutes media. I had the great uh -huh. good fortune, as you know, of having co-founded the Media Studies uh -huh. Department here along yeah. with Bill Hoynes. And, and we've always made it a part of it to take into our account the kind of deep history, the deep time of media, and, uh -huh. and the sorts of things uh -huh. that were medial yeah. and disappeared yeah. or anticipated and yeah. needed their own time to come around. Yeah. My soapbox speech is that libraries are an intellectual technology, always have been, and at one time they were much more cutting edge than they mm -hmm. seem now. And a codex, actually, is mm -hmm. still a, a, a extremely functional, more functional, actually, than digital media, I think, uh, oftentimes. A way of delivering, not, not delivering information, but just doing what media do. I mean, yeah, uh, I mean, it's and, become a commonplace now because of his saying it, but early on in the hypertextual adventure, um, Umberto Eco, I had, had the good fortune of going to his Future of the Book 
conference in San Marino, and he talked then about the medieval cathedral as uh-huh. hypertext, as the yes, first yeah, hypertext. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. You know, yeah. as but the Codex or the Talmud people can argue yeah, as hypertext yeah, too. Yeah, in yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, true, very true. So apart from you know media just sort of existing uh, in, in the text, uh, in the end they're weaponized to some extent uh, by the military into visual and sonic weapons. Yeah. And I thought that was a very interesting turn that they can actually be applied in these kind of sinister ways. Part of that's just real world, right? Yeah. There are these weapons, these crowd control weapons that focus sonic waves or just stun people. And whether or not we believe it's the Cubans or the Russians or whoever's Uh, been doing it to American embassies in Havana and elsewhere, there are those sorts of things. But really is a sort of a central metaphor here. The women that the novel centers Uh on, the kind of main characters, are trying to some extent, to counteract the noise of the world, the noise of media, the uh-huh. noise that, that envelops the world and, mm. and stifles uh, individuality and community. Yeah. yeah, that little world that they create within your yeah. world, it's kind of a quiet center. Yeah, it's, it's very a, interesting. I mean, it, It's a convent. <laughs> uh, yeah, a convent, but it also calls up, you know, 60s communes, and uh, it's, to some extent, an anarchic community, but also it has deep roots in religion. And, and in uh, fact, they, 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 in their own history place its roots in the in the deep history of Franciscan yeah, uh, uh-huh. um, Claire and, and, and yeah, others uh-huh, and Benedictine yeah. experience. But yeah, it also has maybe an evocation of Waco and uh-huh. and those sorts oh, of oh, you yeah. know but because it's a distinctly woman's community it, it, it isn't given over to that kind of violence, but it, yeah. it's seen, I guess this is right on the edge of a spoiler, but it's seen by the authorities as, as a threat. Yeah, interesting in that it does have roots in American history and American religious experience big time. I oh, mean, yeah. you draw that whole world in here and everything that that resonates, not just with, with their experiment here, but also with the Amish, with the, uh, the And Mormons, we're, we're sitting yeah. just downriver from the Shaker communities yes, and yeah. the Oneida uh-huh. communities and yeah, what uh-huh. have you that arguably, because this book does examine a feminist commune, a radical feminist commune. Arguably, it was that same culture that gave forth to the United States, gave forth to Seneca Lake and, yeah. and uh-huh. women's uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, and you know, the and the Shakers, of course, had uh, separation of the genders, and yet uh-huh. a full commitment uh-huh. to the sensuality and to transcendence yeah. and all those sorts of yeah, things. Yeah, so all kinds of things come up. The Old Testament, for one, comes right. up big time because, uh, you know, to some extent, these communities are based on biblical sources. So and, and because Jacob, the Amishman, <laughs> who comes to be sort of their spiritual leader, is, has an Old Testamentary uh, quality about yeah, him. And yeah. It's very interesting the way you do dialects are basically little changes of language mm-hmm. in the way that you have the Amish-speaking, yeah. and I don't know if it's meant to be realistic it's or if it's... pretty if close. Sort of Sometimes, Burgess, well, know, there yeah. are these issues with the Amish that there are different Amish cultures and thus uh-huh. different Amish idiolects uh-huh. and dialects, so it's a little bit of a realization yeah. of the Amish, but yeah, I, I just sort of tried to tip it a little bit. I wrote a couple novels in a row that moved in and out of utterly different languages, yeah. moved in and out of French and English, moved in, into Swedish and yeah. things like that, ah. and even was moved from language to language at, at times. But this one, I try to keep it a little more... And you do move here between starting out, you start out in France, and then you move to Ireland, and you really capture that c- culture nicely, I thought. Well, thank uh, you. I, 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 that was, for me, an interesting thing to try to do. Uh-huh. I like old Bob. He yeah, just he, yeah. he came up whole cloth out of experience I had. I spent a summer studying in Galway during the time I was here uh-huh. and what have you. But, uh, you know, I think he's called in the novel O'Shaughnessy, and he is. He's one of those great Irish storytellers that kind of uh, BSer and talk about old technologies. He's somebody who uh, 
Who has a Gandalfi. Has a Gandalfi <laughs> and a hot air balloon. Yeah, right? hot air balloon, yes, <laughs> right. yeah, yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll give that away. So, yeah. uh, And then, of course, this is very much a work of American literature, and it rests on, oh, you've got all those shoulders that you, you, know, you can rest comfortably on in a nice way. And, of course, your interest in, in Native America comes through here, too. I mean, and that's a little bit Choco. of a preca- precarious position to take yeah, these uh, days. Yeah, I mean, yes, what, yeah. One's always worried about cultural appropriation. I do think that old Bob being a Shanakee is not much different than Tekoa, the yeah. uh, would-be shaman. Uh, Tekoa, his own Gashut people think that he's kind of a, you know, a, a quote, a false Gashut or a phony Indian because he lives in a teepee, which is not their native kind of dwelling. Of course, they're living in, in trailers uh, and what have you. But it's a sort of a risky thing, and he's hooked up with somebody who's a, a renegade uh, a Mormon wife. Uh-huh. And, and, yeah, and, uh-huh. But I think that media, and especially media's transcendent qualities, the portal qualities, have a very close affinity to shamanism. Uh-huh. And to, and oh, 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 that's interesting. Very interesting. You know, this yeah. kind of inducing yeah. of visions of another world. Yeah, and, yeah, uh huh. Fascinating. There are other instances of shamanism, though. All, yeah. Also, um, yeah. yeah. He has sort of one foot in each world, though. He's you know he's not wholly no. native, native. No. So and actually he's more hip in a lot of ways right. than yeah. certainly the settlers and, and as and, and then the main yeah. character he too certainly yeah. oh, yeah, is really is really a, conf- a confidant. You know that brought to mind Leslie Fiedler's "Come Back to the Raft Talk." I remember, yeah. Yeah. yeah, the way he looks at so much uh, American literature as uh, having to do with this kind of somewhat homoerotic relationship between yeah. a white man and uh, yeah. and an Indian, or with uh, Huckleberry Finn, you know, with Jim, the black man. Allegorical in some way. I, I never com- completely bought into Fiedler's uh, uh, If, 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 I, if I can do a minor diversion, I'll yeah. tell you a story about Leslie Fiedler. Uh-huh. My first novel was called The War Outside Ireland, and it was about a different kind of enclave, about Irish-American South Buffalo, New York, where I grew up. Uh-huh. And I, early on, I gave a reading of the novel in Buffalo, unless Fiedler there showed up. I was thrilled uh-huh. because I yeah. read all, as an English major, read all of his things. And after the reading, we were kind of standing around, and he said, "Can I ask you a question?" <laughs> and you think, "What could I possibly answer for you?" And he said to me, "My daughter's marrying somebody, an Irish American. I wonder if you can tell me a little bit about that <laughs> culture." And so I thought, "Okay, okay there's yeah, a reverse yeah, shamanistic. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, that's sure, like yeah. you know, here's an introduction into." Um, that kind of, but yeah, I mean, to pursue your question, there is almost an implicit push toward fluidity in this uh-huh. novel. I yeah. mean, teaching yeah. where I do and, and living in the time we do, uh, one is uh, necessarily brought to consider sexual and gender fluidity. And, and one of the things that happens here, as the women retreat, I try to avoid spoilers carefully, but as yeah. the women retreat to the convent, to the commune, the men are sort of left to themselves. And in fact, the whole idea of paternity is uh, sort of mixed in yeah. a way that we could or could not talk about. You know, it's maybe a spoiler, but and there are, by the way, fluid characters, characters in transition, yeah. and what have you, male, former male characters in transition. So th- those questions are brought to the fore. I don't think that the main character in Tagoa ever quite confront those elements, yeah. Yeah. but they're certainly there. They're yeah. inherent. 
I like Takoa. He's sort of heroic in the end. He does save his wife. He uh, does, so, absolutely. Uh, against her will very much. So maybe, yeah, maybe, and that's, yeah, and that's a you know, problematic scene. Yeah. Right? You know, what you do with gender relations is very interesting throughout, both the sort of gender bending and, and all this sort of strict sexuality. Yeah. And um, and then with the women, a sort of community-based sexuality was a very interesting, very kind of temple priestesses kind of thing. So uh, I just thought that was really interesting part of the book, and, and you really did it well. Thank uh, you. And what you really did well, I don't know if we want to read it, but the uh, group sex scene where yeah. our yeah. hero has sex with his right. two wives, right. and it becomes a kind of confusing thing uh, mentally, uh, what's happening, whose limb is this, and uh, right. Right. I, I just thought it was really beautifully written, uh, especially for an erotic scene, it was so different than what one well, would expect. You thank know, you, so, I probably yeah. won't read it, but, yeah, no, but at yeah. least we'll entice readers yeah. into looking at yeah. it. I, I would maybe quibble with her two wives. Uh, yeah, okay, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Two, I mean, two girlfriends, yes, well, yeah. yeah, you know, yeah. What, uh, what is the term? They, yeah. they, they may be, they may be his two uh, teachers. Yeah, but, two, but, two husbands <laughs> in a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah so, right, yeah, you know. right. But um, thank you. That, I mean, that scene, you know, part of it, of course, is just trying to pick up on a San Francisco scene of a certain yeah. time. But it's also about these. To step back a second and, and talk about gender relations. In fact, part of what's going on here is, you know, it's become second nature to us now, at least around here. Thank God to talk about male gaze and and, yeah. and the kind of male perspectives on, on mm-hmm. how media enforce kind of gender difference yeah. and what have you. And one of the things the novel and its characters try to look at is how to undo that. How to, ah, and, yeah. and I uh, think that you can see the Sisters of Skull Valley not necessarily as a community removing themselves from the world, but trying to remake the world. Yeah. The noise that they're trying to capture and counteract is that the noise of not just simply male gaze, but yeah. about a kind of all the different centrisms yeah. that take over the way we view media and, and each other. Yeah, the, the interesting thing about that is it's not a typical subjectivity in that it is a group subjectivity yeah. that they're yeah. inhabiting there yeah. and making it work. Um, yeah. It's not Takoya just striking right. out on his own and saving his wife as the action of an individual. It's something else that they're doing. And it's where all the promise of the book is. If there's an idealism in the book, it's in in, uh, in that convent. Um, mm. So, well, th- well, thank yeah. you. And I mean, to a certain extent, I'm indebted to a bunch of you say, standing on the shoulders of others. And, you know, figures such as Octavia Butler and, and uh-huh. others who've looked at utopian or dystopian new communities in the face of technologies and, and, yeah. and world catastrophes and whatever. So there is a literature that one can look at and, and um, depend upon. And the sex scene, you have to have a sex scene in a picaresque novel, don't that's you? That's, right. why people, that's, right. that's why people that's buy right. it. They that's see the word picaresque and, and then they, they expect it there. Right. So... So anyway, uh, another thing I noticed is you set a scene really so wonderfully, and it's pure writing, and not easy to do by any means. And I wonder if that's, to some extent, a product of your overall narrative, and that the narrative is so lacking in a kind of linearity that it allows you, because you're not thinking about the future and how this thing is going to play out, although you know there is a plot, you can focus all your creative energy into just expanding out into the space that the characters that you're writing about happen to be in in the chapter that you're writing. I've been reading a lot of uh, Eckhart Tolle, and he's all about presence, uh, and not thinking ahead and not thinking behind either. No, I think it's a a wonderful observation, and it really causes me to think a little bit about one thing I've faced with my print works is that people say, okay, now Michael Joyce has done another hypertext in yeah. print, you know, and, yeah. and, and you didn't. Yeah. But I think the things that drew me to hypertext in the first place were this ability to uh, 
you know, and obviously uh, the, you, you can't be a writer named Joyce without, and I'm not related yeah, yeah, to James yeah, Joyce, yeah. but without thinking Thank of God. the way oh, that sure, Joyce yeah. changed yeah. the way we view yeah. a novel of, of place and of community yeah. and brought us to this sense of spatialized scenes uh -huh. where the language sets the stage and where you move from one place to another in almost the way of lyric poems or uh, music. Yes, yeah, v very lyrical, the whole yeah, thing. Yeah. Uh, it's almost like reading a book of poetry, to, well, to be honest. What you do, you are a poet also. I am. Yes, yeah, so. <laughs> Anyway, uh, you know, very satisfying read. So do you want to read a passage? So we get an idea of what we're talking about here in terms of these lyrical ways you set a scene. Yeah, fortunately, I have one here. So. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to read from the beginning mm -hmm. of it. It's um, set in 1987. In retrospect, I think now that I first saw one of the doors, when I walked with my mother, my hand in hers, as a child of no more than three years old and most likely a year younger, what I remember is not the door itself, but the man who emerged, smiling as he touched a long index finger to his lips, as if to signal that our encounter was a secret between us. His face inexpressibly kind, long as a horse's, his ice-blue eyes gleaming. As I reconstruct my memory of the moment, I think I made as if to pull away from my mother toward the swiftly closing aperture. Its sensation of light within light as the man strode away on long legs off deeper into the park. Surely my mother thought I meant to chase after some insect or a floating strand of gold pollen or worse, and more typically, a shiny discarded scrap, perhaps the narrow band of red cellophane from a cigarette pack. And thus she gently pulled me back toward her as we strolled along the lanes of the park, the spring sun warm. Oh, beautiful. What a way to open a book, huh? Thank you. Yeah, that's a, well, the opening of a book should be a portal, yeah. too. Right? Yeah, that's well, that's true. It, it is. It is a door. A book is a sort of little door, right. isn't it, that you walk into. Yeah, it reminded me of actually uh, Portrait of the Artist of a Young Man. He starts out with a baby talk, yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah, child, absolutely. yeah. So. so can you talk about, then, the fact that you teach writing and the, the relationship between your teaching and your writing, I guess I want well, to ask you about. I, I think it's very intimate, the relationship between my teaching and writing. It is generally the case that I don't write in a teaching year, except I write some scholarly things, essays yeah. and what have you, but trying to do a novel. Poems, of course, you can do at any time, but, but to try to put oneself to a longer work of fiction during a teaching year, for me at least, I have colleagues who manage it quite well, is a, a difficult thing. But I think really the force of your question is, what does working with young writers give you? And one of the things it gives you is an appreciation and a reinforcement of a commitment to risk. I've, uh, you know, I've always uh, been a writer who took chances, I think. And sometimes, you know, that's that's caused my work to seem opaque or, or difficult to get into or what have you. But I think taking chances, and, you know, as a teacher, you try to encourage people, don't work with patterns that somebody else gave you. Don't, mm -hmm. don't decide that there are these constrictions to what uh, you're doing yeah. and what have you. And in our time, we know... Because of the way that the physical page and the digital page, the book and the, and the portals have merged, that you can cross those boundaries quite easily. And I think working with young writers mm -hmm. has kept me honest about my own openness to change and, and to trying different forms and whatever. Mm -hmm. It's wonderful what students come up with out okay. of that. You know, they seem to have one foot on the third rail the for time. me uh, yeah. as writers. So. And then increasingly, yeah. is it fiction, at least worldwide? 
I was going to say just here, but it yeah. sort of really started in France, moves toward autofiction, toward uh-huh. the combination of uh-huh. memoir and yeah. what used to be called creative nonfiction. Yeah. Uh, students are quite willing to skirt those borders in ways that call us all to be a little more honest and a little bit more experimental in uh-huh. the ways that we explore those boundaries. Yeah. So as a discipline at a liberal arts school, creative writing t- seems to me to have great value, to be honest. Uh, at one time, I wouldn't have said that. I would yeah. have said the creative writers are honing in on you know right. uh, English departments, uh, worse than the composition people were honing in right. long ago. But now I don't feel that at all. My students do their best work when they're writing creative pieces for me. I think that's true in general. Yeah. I also uh-huh. say that, you know, the Vassar English Department said a long time uh-huh. commitment to having students read as yeah. well as write, yeah. uh-huh. and we and we try to offer not only each other's writing yeah. to each other, but try to consider text together, and increasingly those texts take on, are in other media and genres and what have you. So it is another way to explore the same kind of world that you do in liberal arts courses mm-hmm. that are in the social sciences or humanities or even increasingly in the natural sciences with their theoretical terms. Uh-huh. And, and so, yeah, I think creative writing finds its place at, as an, a sort of analytical and, and philosophical endeavor as much as, uh, as much as uh, you know... Uh, Creative often sounds like a slur, doesn't it? You know, uh-huh. it either yeah. it has like yes. scarecrow yeah, yeah. quotes does, around yeah, it or yeah. something. Oh, not, you're so not, creative. It's, it's not real and, work. And, yeah, right, yeah, right. So, and, yeah. and too you, much fun. But, but you watch you watch and work with younger writers and uh-huh. artists, and you see that that kind of creativity is actually risking their very being. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They find their voices, uh, and it's very performative in a way, um, and it does expose them, which yeah. is good. I think. I mean, I think it's it's educational to be in that dangerous place. So. So are you working on anything new at the moment? Uh, or this is a teaching year for you? It's you know, a teaching but, year, but so I'm not working on anything yeah, at the moment. Yeah. Uh, you know, the occasional poem or something. You know, there are some ideas that I have, but it's, you know, I think for anyone these days, and the writers that I talk to and who are my friends, I think all of us begin any new project with kind of weariness about whether there's a place for them in the world. Uh-huh. This is maybe a, yeah. another podcast. Is, is there going to be a publisher out there? Yeah, sure. Yeah. <coughs> or readership. You know, yeah, I, sort of, I, I sort of say to my students, you know, I've written 14 books, and I have at least that many readers. And, and, <laughs> and, and I'm not sure that that's a joke. You know? No, 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 no. <laughs> but uh, but um, sure, there's a weariness before setting off and, yeah. and, and, and doing anything. I mean, frankly... That's a lot of work. Uh, frankly, yeah, people aren't yeah. reading yeah, books in the way that they, they did. Yeah, before. no. Okay, so I'd like to thank you, Michael, for visiting with us on the Library Cafe today to talk about your new novel. The novel's called Remedia, a Picaresque, published in 2018 by Steerage Press. It's been a great pleasure to do this. Yeah. Oh, same here. Uh, wonderful, really. So, Thank you. Thanks for coming. So. <laughs>